from Pacific University. This is Bren Swager, co-editor-in-chief and digital editor of the Pacific Index. We're back with a new year, a new semester, and new episodes of the Pacific Index podcast. And for our first episode of 2021, we're invited into a conversation with Pacific Index writer Sebastian Hare and professor of politics and government at Pacific University, Dr. Jeff Seward. This podcast episode was recorded back in November of 2020, after the election of now President Joe Biden, but before this year's events at the Capitol and the inauguration. In their conversation, Sebastian and Dr. Seward discussed the then-current President Donald Trump and the events that were taking place as the presidential transition of power was just beginning. Though much has happened since then, Dr. Seward's insights into the changing of the GOP, the deep division that has been stoked within our country, and the devastating effects this can have on our democracy are even more biting with what we now know. This fire that has been stoked is one that will take a long time to put out, so these words are more vital now than ever. I hope you enjoy this enlightening conversation, but before I turn it over to them, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the College of Business at Pacific University, which offers an array of undergraduate programs and an MBA as well. You can get more information at pacificu.edu slash cob. Anchor.fm, which has been our go-to platform for publishing our podcasts over the past year. They've made it so easy and user-friendly, so if you want to get into the podcast game, go check out anchor.fm. And finally, to the Pacific University Department of Theater and Dance. Their new play, Revolt, she said, Revolt Again, runs March 11th through the 14th and is a dark, funny, dreamlike play that interrogates gender norms, sexuality, romance, and patriarchy. And it's staged at numerous sites across Pacific's campus, inviting audiences on a journey of broken expectations with a group of brazen, revolting, and revolutionary characters. It sounds super cool, so please be sure to check it out. And you can get tickets at pacificu.edu slash theater tickets. And with that, I will now turn it over to Sebastian Hare. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Pacific Index podcast. I'm Sebastian Hare, and joined with me today from the politics and government faculty is Pacific University's own Dr. Jeff Seward. How are you today, Professor Seward, and could you briefly describe the topics that you teach? I'm fine. I'm actually, by training, a comparative politics specialist, comparing American political systems to other political systems with a particular specialty in Latin America which I didn't think used to be relevant to American politics, but is becoming increasingly so. But I also teach political economy and political philosophy. I teach a course right now, I'm teaching a course called Socialism and its Critics, and I have a companion course to that called Conservatism and its Critics. I teach a course called Markets, Politics, and Justice. So I actually teach a very wide range of, of courses at Pacific. So just a note for listeners, this is being recorded on November 24th, 2020, three weeks after the presidential election that occurred on November 3rd. The General Services Administration approved the presidential administration transition process yesterday on November 23rd. However, President Donald Trump still has not conceded to President-elect Joe Biden and has lost over 20 lawsuits in a desperate attempt to overturn the results of the election. With that out of the way, it is time for the first question for you, Dr. Stewart. Are the current actions of the GOP to cast out on the results of the election a new thing in a democracy like the United States? How dangerous of a game are the Republicans playing in sowing mistrust in the election process? It's a very new thing in American politics. In fact, it's, a, it's unprecedented. 
there have been some testy transfers of power in our history. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were bitter enemies, although they later became good friends again. And John Adams didn't show up for Thomas Jefferson's inauguration. Roosevelt and Hoover was a pretty testy transition. And as you can imagine, Obama giving way to Trump was kind of a testy transition. But in none of those cases did the losers refuse to concede the election. Hillary Clinton conceded the election the night of the election. Within a day or two, President Obama had Trump in the White House and had an hour and a half meeting with him, trying to explain to him what issues and problems he was going to face. No one has ever done this. No GSA has ever taken three weeks to certify the winner. People sometimes refer to 2000, but in that election, it wasn't clear who the winner was. Uh, Florida was the key and it was contested and it took 37 days before the Supreme Court finally made a, a still questionable ruling that gave Florida to Bush. But even then, there was some of the transition material happen. Now, this is completely unprecedented and deeply damaging to the legitimacy of elections and therefore deeply damaging to the legitimacy of our democracy. If you look at public opinion polls, confidence in government and support for democracy has steadily declined in the United States. And so we're at a point where we really need events and, and people and situations that reinforce our commitment to democracy. And instead, we're experiencing an event that is uh, profoundly undermining democracy. So you said that you teach a class on modern dictatorship and President Donald Trump I has not yet. been shy in his admiration for authoritarian leaders. How similar is he actually to modern dictators? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, he's, he's in the category of right-wing populism and right-wing populists in Russia and in Hungary and in Poland have undermined democracy in serious ways. So it's not quite clear how we should categorize them. Political scientists have come up with the term competitive authoritarianism of systems that still have democratic facades. There are still multiple parties. Some portions of the press are free. There are still elections, but the uh, playing field is so tilted against the opposition that the right-wing populist government is essentially permanently installed. A feature of those uh, governments, however, has always been that the right-wing populist had strong majority support, was winning elections by 55, 60, 65%. They then often changed the constitution. They subverted the judiciary. They cracked down on the free press and the like. What's interesting about Donald Trump is that he's never had majority support. His approval ratings have never gotten essentially above 45, 46%, and sometimes have been as low as 38, 39%. He lost the popular vote 
in 2016 by almost 3 million votes. He's losing this one by over 6 million votes. And that makes a difference. Our constitution is also notably difficult to amend. So in, in many right-wing populist regimes, one of the first things they do once they've got power thoroughly consolidated is they amend the constitution to allow themselves to run for re-election indefinitely. Well, this was not an option open to Trump. And another thing that often happens is these right-wing populist governments come into office during a major national crisis and they solve that crisis in one form or another. Trump got his crisis, got the COVID-19 crisis. And if Trump had handled that crisis effectively, instead of botching it horribly, I think he would have been elected easily. And so he understood that as an obstacle to his reelection because it prevented him from touting his economic achievements, such as they were, and they weren't nearly as great as he was claiming they were, but he was gonna ride that and this was getting in the way. And so he prioritized opening up the economy over handling the pandemic with disastrous results. And that's why he lost the election basically is people voted on COVID-19 and his record was the worst in the world basically. But we didn't degenerate into a competitive authoritarian system. But I would say that the Republican party has become wedded to essentially competitive authoritarian ideology. And so the behavior of the Republican Party during these three weeks has been just outrageous. And it's clear that especially the elected officials of the Republican Party in the large majority are perfectly comfortable with using any means, legal, illegal, corrupt, uncorrupt, fraudulent, to try to overturn the election and try to deny the president-elect any basic legitimacy. So we're a strange democracy now in that we're a two-party system and one of those parties has essentially become an authoritarian party that has no qualms about undermining any aspect of democracy that leads to their defeat. Well, that's a, that's a weird and dangerous situation. And if the Republican Party in its current character ever does get control of the presidency, the Congress, and the judiciary, I think there would be a serious threat of us losing our democracy. There's no secret that the United States is strife with political division, both among elected officials and the public. However, research shows that the ideological chasm between the Democrats and Republicans is mostly attributable to the strong rightward shift among Republicans over the past 20 to 30 years. Is the current relationship between the GOP and Democrats a relatively new phenomenon, or have we seen this before in American politics? Have there been comparable large shifts in parties in other democracies, advanced or otherwise? There have been comparable levels of polarization, most notably before the Civil War. You know, there was a senator in the United States Senate who said some things that Southerners regarded as insulting to their honor. And a uh, Democratic 
pro-slavery senator got out his cane and went across the aisle and beat this guy almost to death. He was in the hospital for months recovering from his wounds and eventually died in part because of this assault that was made. And the partisanship between the, the pro-slavery South and the anti-slavery North was just incredible. The 60s in some ways were deeply polarized in that way too. But I can't think of any example where one of our major political parties moves so radically in one direction. One of the things that I always find frustrating is the plague on both your houses analysis that somehow the rabid partisanship is something being created equally by the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats haven't moved to the far left. They now have some representatives in Congress who are much more to the left than before. But overall, if you look at the Democratic platforms of the last few cycles and the Democratic candidates, they haven't moved sharply to the left, but the Republican Party has moved very sharply to the right. It used to be, if you looked at the voting records of the Republicans and Democrats in Congress, there was an overlap. You'd have the most conservative Democrats would be more conservative than the most liberal Republicans, right? You could see the bell curves and the bell curves would overlap, which created a basis for bipartisan legislation where Republicans could attract some conservative Democrats or Democrats could attract some relatively liberal Republicans. If you look at the voting records now, the most conservative Democrat is still well to the left of the most liberal Republican. This is true both in the House and in the Senate. It also used to be that there was kind of a broad consensus about the role of government and liberals wanted more of it and conservatives wanted less of it, but you could compromise in the middle with some of it, right? But now the positions of the Republican and Democratic parties are radically opposed to each other. It's harder to compromise if the Democrats want a more active government and the Republicans want to gut the government. There's not a middle ground there. The Democrats can't conscientiously say, well, let's gut the government a little bit. And the Republicans can't really say, well, we want to reduce the size of government, but we'll agree to expand it a little bit. And they're on gay rights, on abortion and other things, there, there's not an easy place to compromise. And so it's all well and good to talk about reaching across the aisle, but it doesn't work if we're talking about two different opposing ideologies as opposed to a more conservative and a more progressive version of a similar ideology. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. And Trump is going to play a disruptive role too. I think it's almost certain that as Trump leaves the White House, he's going to announce that he's going to run for president again in 2024. I'm not sure he will actually run, but I think he will announce that he's going to run. He will then do these big rallies he can now charge money for people to come to the rallies and people will probably pay to do that. 
He'll use his candidacy for 2024 as a fundraising instrument. And he will preclude then no other major Republican who wants to be president in 2024 will have the courage to announce that he's a candidate because then the pro-Trump electorate of the Republican Party will kill them because they're running against the great hero. So he will completely block the campaigns of Mike Pence and Nikki Haley and Marco Rubio um, and Ben Sass and any other Republican who has his eye on maybe or her eye on the 2024 election. And this will keep him in the news and it will keep him able to mobilize the pro-Trump base. And that's going to complicate a Biden presidency because especially he's going to continue even after he leaves the White House, he's going to continue to propagate the myth that the election was rigged, the election was stolen, and mobilize people around that idea. And that idea freezes the Republican Party in the Congress from collaborating with the illegitimate Biden presidency. Given that elections can be a vulnerable time for countries, like in Belarus, for example, what are the political and legal structures in the U.S. that protect our democracy from destabilization? Are there enough? There are not enough. You know, a couple of, just a couple of things could have happened in this election. If those two Republicans on the canvassing board of Wayne County had stuck to their original vote and refused to certify the election, and then if the two Republicans on the state canvassing board had refused to certify the Michigan election, and that this had then spread to some other states, Trump probably would not have allowed the transition to start. And he would have continued to uh, contest the election. And there's all kinds of mischief that he could have done if certifications were delayed. He was working towards getting legislatures to try to designate a slate of electors for him, no matter what the popular vote was. I think that would be hard and some people think it would be illegal. One of the terrible things we have is we have partisan secretaries of state. So the secretary of state who oversees state elections is elected on a partisan basis. He's a Democrat or a Republican. In the year 2000, when Florida was at stake, George Bush's brother was governor and had an impact on how elections were to be run. And the Republican Secretary of State was co-chair of Bush's Florida campaign. And at the same time was responsible for overseeing the election. In 2018, when the current governor of Georgia, Kemp, was running for governor against Stacey Abrams, he was the Secretary of State and engaged in all kinds of voter suppression measures, especially to suppress the black vote, and probably stole that election. So he's the candidate and he's running the election. Well, this is just ridiculous to have people elected on partisan ballots running American elections. And I think it's really dangerous. This year, the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia was very courageous and stood up and said, no, I'm gonna do my job in a professional way and it is what it is, the votes are what they are, and I'm not gonna engage in any shenanigans. If 
Kemp had still been Secretary of State in Georgia, he would not have shown any similar restraint at all. The two Republican candidates for Senate have both demanded that the Republican Secretary of State resign because he didn't do enough to change the votes. We need a lot of political reform. I think we have one of the worst electoral systems in the world that is most vulnerable to partisan manipulation. And lots of other countries, including many countries in Latin America, have set up independent electoral courts that run the elections and so forth. The Mexican elections are much better than the American elections now. And, and we need to modernize our electoral process and, and be sure that elections are run in a nonpartisan way. It's very dangerous to democracy if the basic rules of elections each cycle are subject to prolonged partisan maneuvering because then it just looks like, oh, you win the election by being the best at using your partisan muscle. If that becomes the norm, then people lose confidence in elections as being the appropriate and legitimate way to decide political conflict. So yeah, we've got a lot of work to do on that front. So essentially, we get Mexico to build us an electoral system and they'll pay for it. And they'll pay for it. I'm sure they'd be happy to pay for it. <laughs> well, thank you for talking to me today, Professor Seward. And I hope this was somewhat of an enlightening conversation. I know, at least for myself, whenever anxious about you know the state of the world, the state of the country, et cetera, brings me a little more comfort when I know more about what's going on at least. Good. Well, it was a pleasure to participate. Yep.